Hi, listeners. This is Understand South Carolina, a weekly news podcast from the Post and Courier. I'm Emily Williams. And I'm Matt Rasnick. Today, we're talking about when South Carolina might reach herd immunity from the coronavirus. Based on the best available data and insight from experts, our state is still far from that point. For the first time on this show, we're joined by a reporter from Post and Courier, Greenville. Anna Mitchell has been reporting on the pandemic from South Carolina's hardest hit county, and she recently did a deep dive into this question of when the spread of COVID in the state might be under control. We are also going to hear from Brian Brousset, who has been working to help us make sense of our state's COVID-19 data. My name is Anna Mitchell, and I cover various things for the Greenville newsroom of the Post and Courier. I've been a reporter in the upstate since 1999 and have been covering schools, Clemson, business, and anything else that catches my fancy since then. So what was the driving force for you to look into this question of when South Carolina might reach herd immunity with the coronavirus? Sure. Um, a, A lot of topics when it comes to coronavirus bleed into um, multiple beats. And so through my school's coverage, I'm getting, you know, bombarded by emails and text messages from parents who are freaking out. I'm a parent. So yeah, I guess I'm freaking out too. We're all freaking out because the infection rates are so high up here in Greenville. Um, We heard last week that the Greenville metropolitan statistical area, which is four counties up here, um, was at the top of a list of middle-sized regions studied by the White House COVID-19 task force. They, they study all the regions of the country and they kind of rank them, like who's the worst outbreak at the moment? And there's Greenville at the top. The Greenville MSA, Metropolitan Statistical Area, was um, the worst outbreak center for coronavirus in the nation last week for middle-sized areas. So I say to my editor, gee, I guess we're gonna hit herd immunity naturally, right? Meaning we're gonna have so many people infected that we'll, we'll, we'll get there and, not, and, the, and the disease won't spread anymore. Well, my editor slapped me down pretty hard and he said, no, we are nowhere close to that. But then he kind of scratched his head and said, wait a minute, we had to actually look into that. Like, how close are we? So let's just go back. Let's define herd immunity or like you said, it could also be called population immunity. Uh, what does that actually mean? Sure. When you're when you've achieved herd immunity for a disease, whether it's measles or polio, it's when the disease ceases to spread. Basically, what happens is if you are an unfortunate person who gets infected somehow, you might infect one additional person who's also unfortunately not immune, but then it pretty much stops there. When you lack herd immunity, you can have outbreaks, right? You can you can spread it to one person and then six more people and then exponentially more. So herd immunity is where infection stops with the, essentially the second patient. And in your story, you talk about how herd immunity is a moving target. Can you explain a little more what you mean by moving target and how it's being measured? Under ideal circumstances, there's there's a couple of reasons why it's a moving target. Under ideal circumstances where everyone's wearing their masks, and social distancing, you can get to herd immunity at once 70% of the population is immune, you've achieved, quote, herd immunity, meaning it's not spreading anymore. 70%. That's the low end. And that's if everyone's being really good. And the reason you have to be really good is because you might be immune, 
and yet still have viral load that is spreading in the population. So being inoculated does not mean you aren't infectious. It just means you're not gonna get badly sick. So what scientists don't know right now is how infectious you might be despite being inoculated. So that's why you still have to behave. That's why even if you've had the shot, you still need to wear your mask because you, might, you might well still be able to infect other people. So if everyone's behaving, herd immunity, 70%. If folks aren't behaving or if people are freewheeling it and running around with no masks on and therefore the behavior of the population is risky, you have to set herd immunity at a higher end, like 85%. And so what um, Dr. Kelly told me is that herd immunity in places like the upstate will have to be at a higher level, more like 85%. Then... Dr. Brandon Traxler, who is the interim director of public health for the state, she said, eh, we might be inching more towards 100% if, in fact, people who have been inoculated are still infectious. So that's why science is still happening. Research is still happening. What they do know is that vaccines are good and everyone should get a vaccine. And we're just going to keep pushing and pushing and, and sort out the details on percentages later because there is more demand than there is supply of vaccine right now anyway. I want to go back to that that question of what kind of immunity someone would have if they've had the coronavirus. So we do know that someone who has had COVID can get it again. So how does that actually factor into that question of, of immunity and who in the population is immune? Sure, sure, sure. We're talking about natural immunity now. So people who have had it, not getting it again, theoretically, right? We all know that's the case with other, like the chicken pox that I had when I was a kid. Your immune response is much stronger if you've been vaccinated than if you have been infected. So yes, that's why we've had isolated cases already, very isolated, very rare cases of people getting it a second time. They, that's why even people who've had it, they say, if you've had it, still get vaccinated. Another reason is okay so a your response your immune response is stronger if you're vaccinated b your ability to resist the disease might fade over time they don't fully understand how long your natural immunity will last that's just that's just an open question they're optimistic they've actually done studies that say hey this this appears to stick but since we don't know for sure go ahead and get the vaccine because it's stronger anyway so with that you talk a little bit about behavior and how that's going to play a big role into what percentage of herd immunity different parts of the state need to reach. How is it now? Are different parts of South Carolina closer to reaching herd immunity to, than others? Yeah, we, we did break it down by low country, PD, Midlands, and upstate to look at how many people might have immunity right now compared to the population. Probably unsurprisingly, the, the, the highest population immunity is in the upstate where it's, I think it was like above 5%, right? And then you had Charleston that was at 3.9%. So it's on the low end. And then the PD and Midlands are in between. You know, it averages out to 4.6%, not high, right? When you're talking about a wiggle room of one percentage point as a percentage of the population, it's still very low. I almost kind of think our graphic, you know, we broke it out by region, but they were all so similar. Four or five or maybe edging up to 6%, but that's it's just low. So kind of putting that all together, we are far from that point of 
herd immunity. We really need vaccinations to get to that point because, like you said, your immunity with a vaccination is that's that's stronger and you want that versus the natural immunity that you get from actually having the virus. So how many people approximately or what's the range of people who need to be vaccinated in South Carolina to get to that point of population immunity? We are 3.8 million to 4.1 million double inoculations away from achieving herd immunity. That being the case, it's, it's going to be a heavy lift. Circling back a little bit to where you talked about the Greenville metropolitan area being the worst mid-sized area last week from the White House Coronavirus Task Force, how did the Greenville County area hit that grim benchmark? Like, how did they get there? What were the driving factors behind that? Do you know? I talked to Dr. Kelly about that, the assistant state epidemiologist, and she said behavior, 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 basically. It's how people are acting up here. And so I live here, and I know that when I go to Walmart, I typically see maybe one or two people not wearing a mask, but it's actually typically better closer into urban centers like Greenville City. It's when you kind of, you know, you go out in in Greenville, the rural areas are north of Greenville City and south of Greenville City. So you start kind of radiating out from the city of Greenville, and you see a lot less mask wearing. South Carolina, like many other states, is going through this vaccination process in set phases, and South Carolina is still in phase 1A. Uh, So for that, we're talking healthcare workers, people living in long-term care facilities. Uh, The state has also just said that any seniors 70 or older are now eligible. After that, Uh, We will go into phase 1B, and that also adds in some other essential workers to the mix, teachers, first responders, bus drivers, people working in factories. 1C adds in people with underlying health concerns, other essential workers, truckers, home builders, the media. So I wanted to ask, at what point in these vaccination phases might we get to that place of the spread of coronavirus being more under control in in South Carolina, probably not in any of those phase one stages, right? Right. You know, this is anyone's guess. I asked Dr. Kelly, do we know how many people are in phase 1A? Because I had this fantasy of doing a graphic that showed over time how many people populate each phase and therefore when we can expect to reach herd immunity. Well, that was just a fantasy because so many people occupy multiple essential worker categories. And I don't know, I mean, I I could try, maybe, I would be a major data project to try to figure out what is the population of individuals in each phase. All I could assert in my story is that it'll be sometime during phase two. And that is when this thing goes to the general population where anyone can get vaccinated. And that's really when you're going to hit the 85% that we need for herd immunity. So what do vaccinations look like, right? What what is what does a vaccination strategy look like? And right now we know that vaccines are being given in like hospital type settings and very controlled environments, you know, and this is important because people lining up for the vaccine might themselves be infectious and not realize it, right? So you have to social distance and be super careful even within these vaccine clinics. So what a vaccine clinic looks like right now for coronavirus is like you have people waiting to be called in and that kind of thing. And 
this is a real contrast to like the polio vaccine where you had gymnasiums full of little kids lining up to be given the vaccine. You can't do that with coronavirus, right? Because it's airborne. Measles, they said that was a vaccine developed in the mid-1960s and it was administered in quick order. I think it took, took longer than what we're hoping for. It took like a couple years, but it did drop precipitously. And the popularity of the measles vaccine, Dr. Kelly told me the popularity that dr drove that was because measles was so visible. You could see a rash. You knew you had it, right? And coronavirus is this kind of invisible scourge. I, I also didn't mention the social justice piece of this, that one source I talked to was really worried that the folks most vulnerable to severe illness and death from coronavirus are some of the most disenfranchised populations of the state. We're talking about African-American and Latino populations. Finding them and making sure they get the vaccine could be a real challenge, which is ironic given that they're also some of the most vulnerable to severe illness. I'm Brian Boussay. I'm a news developer here at the Post and Courier that sort of covers a lot of duties, but but basically the project I've been working on for you know most of 2020 and will probably be working on through 2021 is our COVID dashboard. So I'm I'm basically the guy who decides what data we visualize from DHEC, how we visualize it, and also every once in a while I'll pair up with a reporter to do a piece of uh, COVID data reporting. So we spoke with Anna Mitchell about her kind of deep dive into the question of herd immunity and when South Carolina might get to that point. And you worked with her on that too. So what kind of data w was available for you to look at? What were you digging into to try to answer that question? Basically, the rough math we worked out was how many cases of COVID-19 have occurred in the population in the last 90 days and how many people across the state of South Carolina have either had the Pfizer vaccine or the Moderna vaccine by kind of adding up those numbers and dividing by the overall population of the state. And we sort of also divided it into individual uh, regions. We were able to determine that about 4.6 of South Carolina's population has immunity right now. So that's a 4.6 number for herd immunity. That's very, very, very far away from the 70 to 85 percent that scientists agree would be necessary. Along with this information, you've been maintaining our COVID-19 dashboard. Can you tell us a little bit about what has gone into maintaining that and what kind of difficulties you may have faced with its upkeep? Yeah, of course. Uh, the, the COVID dashboard was sort of conceived early on in the outbreak as kind of a, a living document is how I thought of it. Uh, it's sort of the idea was to, you know, add modules and revise modules as the sort of COVID narrative Developed. So, so right at the start of the COVID outbreak, for example, cases were being detected in New York and, and Washington and California, but we didn't have anything yet in South Carolina. So, you know, at that time, the COVID dashboard was really just a, a sort of map of the country with where these outbreaks are happening. Once we kind of had our first outbreak in South Carolina, we refocused a little bit. We took away that national map. We put up a South Carolina map and we started to really kind of make sure that we were localizing it, you know, first at the state level and then later at the county level. You know, as, as data becomes available from DHEC, that also sort of decides what we put on the dashboard and what we take off the dashboard. For, for a period of time, we had zip data, 
you know, we were mapping cases by zip code to try and determine hotspots. But at a certain point, you know, the zip codes per capita all had a similar degree of infection. And so, you know, that sort of hotspot analysis became somewhat less interesting as a story. And so that went away. We replaced it with another module. I want to give a shout out to the readers here. I've, I've received really incredible feedback uh, and really helpful feedback on the dashboard. You know, some of the reader questions have really sort of helped me determine uh, what data is descriptive and important. And, and also, you know, what, what kind of data is maybe a little bit confusing on first glance or what needs to be clarified or what really isn't contributing to the overall story that we want to show. Brian was actually on the podcast in mid-2020 to talk about this dashboard, but there's been so much data between then and now. Uh, you're working on this every week, so I'm curious, what have you learned over time looking at these numbers? You, you gave that example of, you know, first looking at the nationwide map, then localizing things, and just kind of learning along the way what information is most helpful for people when they're trying to gauge where the pandemic is right now in South Carolina. So what are some of the things that you've learned over really the last, I mean, we're getting close to that that year mark of looking at these numbers. A year of COVID is sort of a hard thing, still a hard thing for me to sort of comprehend. You know, I think the biggest change I made to the dashboard since I've been on the show is the COVID-19 by county module that's beneath the uh, kind of dominant map and the case and death data line charts. This was really inspired by the New York Times, but the idea was to show thumbnail charts, essentially, of how cases have grown across South Carolina counties. Because it's one thing to see sort of what the current county number is in relation to all the other current county numbers, but how do you determine really if your county is getting, if, if the COVID situation is getting worse or if it's actually getting better? And so uh, the thinking behind the sort of mosaic of line charts showing each individual county's growth rate was to sort of help give readers that information. And, and what's really remarkable on that graphic right now, Greenville has been, I think, the story for the last four or so months, at least. If you look at the Greenville chart, it has the steepest slope right now out of any of the county charts. It's averaging a seven-day average of 673 cases right now. That's as of January 13th. Yeah, Greenville is, is really just an absolute hotspot right now. Just earlier this week, South Carolina's DHEC reported some internal systems issues that is affecting the number of cases and deaths that are being reported. Can you tell us a little bit about your experience with getting the data from DHEC and how you take that data and then put it into what you're making on the COVID dashboard and maybe talk a little bit about the delay in reporting. I know that there's the, the two-day lag in data. Can you explain that a little bit? After Thanksgiving, DHEC basically took a break reporting COVID data on Thanksgiving and sort of came back the next day with a built-in lag time into their data. Uh, what that means for current data is that uh, there's a two-day lag essentially. So, you know, for example, data that was reported on January 10th, that's actually case and death data that corresponds to January 8th for the last month or so. We've had a two-day lag time. But also in the last two days, you know, starting on uh, Monday, January 11th, DHEC has started to have uh, internal systems issues. And what that means is their case reports and their death reports are undercounted, which introduces, you know, sort of an interesting data quandary that, that we've been wrestling with here in the Post and Courier. And that is, you know, do we report incomplete case numbers and annotate them as such? Or is that misleading? And is it better to sort of pause reporting data that would fall on dates that come after January 8th? Because January 8th is essentially the last day that we had really good data. That was data that was reported on January 10th, so the Sunday. Basically what I've done is I've halted any updates to the dashboard that have been reported 
on January 11th forward. And so the dashboard isn't ingesting any data that comes after January 8th. But we are we are taking into account historic revisions. This is another sort of quirk that we learned DHEC has done. Maybe the biggest learning experience to me throughout this entire COVID experience is that we're watching science in real time. Um, and what that means is that, you know, the numbers for one day will be reclassified. Cases will be added, cases will be subtracted, cases will be redistributed as the science happens in real time. And, and maybe, you know, the, ep the epidemiologists discover that, oh, that, you know, case that we thought, you know, was a case that was discovered on, on uh, say, for example, January 1st, you know, that, that was actually, that we should reclassify that case as something that had an onset of, say, December 29th. Um, so, you know, a, a big thing we do is uh, we, we, we always track those data revisions to keep our data 100% in lockstep with the good data that, that DHEC is reporting. Um, and so we are continuing to do that, even though um, DHEC has some system failures that make the data integrity of reports after January questionable. Their, their data revisions for dates on January 8th and previously still appear pretty good. So we are, we are revising that historic data as DHEC reports it. I think one of the interesting things when we get to this point, like we said, we are coming up on a year of COVID and there's definitely what people call pandemic fatigue or just, just the fact that this has been the reality for so long. I think it can be difficult for people to realize how severe the pandemic is right now in South Carolina, but you're looking at these numbers every day and the numbers really communicate that things are worse than they have ever been in terms of cases and, and positive rates. What have you seen over the last about month or so in terms of those numbers that really communicate that? 2020 was horrible. 2021 might be horrible. And the cases over the last month, I mean, you know, just about every measurement is climbing. I don't think, you know, the general seven-day um, average that we chart on the website, it's been, you know, generally going up since October 2nd. That was that was the inflection point. That was, if you want to think of it in terms of waves, you know, I don't know if I can think of it in terms of a wave anymore. I mean, this is, it just keeps going up. There's, it, you know, to me, a wave implies that it, it sort of crests and then it comes down. What, what we've seen since October 2nd is pretty, pretty linear growth in terms of new COVID-19 cases per day. You know, I do want to say, though, it is important to look at this on the county level. Charleston is seeing a, uh, a far less severe uptick than in Greenville and Spartanburg, uh, than even Richland, which has a really interesting curve if you look at it. And, and I would, looking at Richland County's curve, that, that to me does seem to sort of spike and, and crest in, in ways that I would describe as a wave. But yeah, I mean, I mean, generally speaking, the last month has been really hard. I think, you know, epidemiologists were telling us it was going to be hard. This was, you know, somewhat expected. It's still very frustrating to see. Throughout the pandemic, we've been looking at, of course, case numbers and deaths from COVID-19, but with the arrival of vaccinations that introduces new data points, right, of how many people have received the vaccine. How do you see maybe incorporating that data into our coverage in the near future, you know, as more people are able to get vaccinated? Yeah, so I think this is a really uh, strong point to kind of show how the, the COVID narrative changes and how we want to sort of manipulate our dashboard to reflect that. I, I do think the sort of dominant story in 2021 will be how effective is the vaccine rollout? You know, DHEX data is interesting right now for vaccines. It's not being offered in a CSV format, to my knowledge. It's not being offered in a JSON format, to my knowledge. That's not going to mean anything to a lot of people, but but to a data reporter, I mean, that's that's actual data that you can manipulate with a computer right out the box when you download it. What I've seen of DHEX vaccination data is it's uploaded in a PDF, which means I need to rely on scraping software to sort of, you know, pull 
the images of you know letters and numbers, convert them into something machine readable, and then process those. So you know I don't anticipate a really robust visualization on the COVID dashboard until DHEC starts to provide robust, manipulatable data. By manipulatable, I mean that I can process it and visualize it, you know, not change it in any way. You know, that could change today. I know I know there's some changes being made to the DHEC database um, in terms of vaccine data. Right now, they are sort of mapping where vaccine distribution sites are, and, and that is offered in a, in a JSON format that we can map and, and update as, as that data feed changes. But I'm going to be, you know, eager to see sort of what real kind of JSON data becomes available for vaccines. And I think when it does, the opportunity is going to present itself pretty clearly that we need to overhaul the dashboard, put a big module up showing where, you know, maybe by the county level even, vaccinations are happening, similar to how we do with death numbers or case numbers, like let's chart it, how many vaccines are happening per day and really sort of establish a trend that, yes, things are getting better. To view our COVID-19 dashboard, you can visit postandcourier.com slash COVID-19. We will also include the link to that in today's show notes. On Wednesday, all South Carolina seniors age 70 or older were eligible to make appointments to get the coronavirus vaccine. But even before those appointments went live, health officials warned that the newly eligible seniors shouldn't expect to receive the coronavirus vaccine anytime soon. There's a lack of available appointments. You can read more about the vaccine rollout and other news related to COVID-19 in our state at postandcourier.com. Do you have questions about the pandemic in South Carolina that you want us to answer on this show? Write to us at understandsc at postandcourier.com or tweet us at understandsc. Be sure to sign up for our weekly newsletter so you can be one of the first to hear about new episodes. By signing up at the link in the show notes, you will be automatically entered for a chance to win a pair of Apple AirPods. Thanks, and we'll be back next week. Understand South Carolina is a production of The Post and Courier. Our music is by Billy Fountain. You can stream his music on Spotify at Billy Fountain. We'd love to know what you think of the show. You can reach us at understandsc at postandcourier.com or on Twitter at understandsc. If you're a fan of the show, please rate and review us on the Apple Podcasts app. Keep up with the latest headlines at postandcourier.com. We'll see y'all next week.